bit of a weird entry into the franchise for me personally, because I've never played this one. I've played 1, 2, 3, 5, and Tear Chris, but I've never actually played 4. Not on purpose, mind you. It wasn't like I was like, ah, I'm avoiding that game. It was more along the lines of the fact that this was a PS2 game, and for reasons that I've mentioned on the show before, I kind of ended up missing out on several of the PS2-era games, so I just never got around to re- uh, going back and playing it. So, I was kind of pumped going into this, because this was the ship one! And, oh, that just sounds so cool, and, oh, it's it's not it's not actually that good. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's not bad, but this is probably the second worst ga- entry into the series for me, and a game that I probably will never play again. I have no actual evidence of this, but I have a speculation that this was a prototype game for 5, in the same way that 1 was a prototype game for 2. Now, we do know that 1 was a prototype game for 2, that's that's definitive fact. I just think that this was a prototype game for 5 in the similar vein, especially since we had several different developers working on it at this point in history. It's also a bit of a shame, since 1, 2, and 3 basically formed a cohesive arc, which felt like it should have continued, and then instead we went into the past, and 4 kind of leads more directly into 1, with the Scarlet Moon Empire being a regular background character in this one. But anyways, I digress. There's a lot of aspects of this game that feel just kind of unpolished and unfinished. The single worst thing by far was the animations for me. Uh, Just the animations in general, but especially the combat animations. To give you one example, everyone who wields a sword has the exact same combat animation, just to name one example of that. It felt like they just... It felt like they were trying something out, trying something new. It's not like this is completely unheard of. They already had some issues with this with regards to Suikoden 3, which I mentioned before. Oh yes, by the way, I know several people pronounce Suikoden or Suikoden a little bit differently. Just acknowledging that before we go forward. I do like how this has New Game Plus. What I do not like (laughs) is that this game unlocks several features that should be in the base game in New Game Plus. And those features are the ability to dash, which I found out actually works on the ship as well as on the ground, and the ability to skip cutscenes, which are two things that I generally consider to be mandatory when it comes to games of this design. But... When I say that this game feels kind of like a prototype, I don't mean it's actually bad. It just feels a little more amateur, like they didn't quite know how to do a few things. The game is actually really, really short. I actually, uh, I will admit that after a certain point in the game, uh, just a little bit after uh, Iluya, the whole Iluya... Actually, no, it wasn't even there. It was actually with the Razril situation. Right after Razril, I went ahead and activated a no-encounters cheat to get through the rest of the game. And I got through the entire game in about seven hours, something like that, seven or eight hours. It is not a long game. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with a shorter game. But I point that out because at least four of those hours were spent getting to Razril. Because one of the other major problems of this game is the fact that it doesn't have a dash button and that the encounters are arduously high. The, the the random encounter rate is through the damned roof. This is nest level of encounters rates. I, <laughs> I don't even know what else to say about this. But even more, on top of that, the, the equipment and gear you get isn't really all that great and doesn't really change your overall power output all that much, which means that the only thing you can really do to develop your characters is to level them which is your standard vertical progression as far as uh, power progression. But the problem is that's also the default standard. Like, virtually every RPG, even going back into the SNES era, usually gives you some additional methods of customizing your character outside of just increasing the numbers. And this game kind of doesn't, which made it not really all that enjoyable to level or to, to combat. 
That being said, you know, you're probably thinking, oh, God, was there anything this game did right gameplay-wise? Yes. The ship battles. The naval, the naval conflicts. Those are great. Assigning captains, assigning rune cannoneers, assigning the, you know, making sure they have the right people on board, which varies up the stats of the ship significantly, allows it to kind of have a pseudo, you know, uh, rock, paper, scissors, fire emblem triangle kind of a thing going on. And the ability to uh, remaneuver and outmaneuver. Uh, there, obviously, more could be done to that. And in a modern setting, I would expect there to be more depth and more uh, complexity to that kind of a system. But that was legitimately fun. At no point in time did I feel frustrated or irritated doing the naval battles. That was awesome. So definite props in that case. And that's not just because I'm a ship person. I, I really feel like they did the army battle thing uh, good service here. It wouldn't surprise me if that was either the first thing they did or the thing they just spent the most time on. Because it feels the most polished of all the various features of this game. Oh yeah, speaking of that unpolished feel thing, I really want to know how many other people were bothered by... Uh, Oh my god, here's this person over here. Fade to black. Fade in from black. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do about this area? I don't know, but I think we have to go down this way. Okay, fade to black. Fade in from black. Okay, well now that we're gone over to this area, fade to black. <laughs> Just constantly. Oh my god, constantly in so many cutscenes. They do this fade to black, fade to black, fade to black, fade to black thing. And in some cases, it was literally in between a few lines of dialogue. As in, the scene hasn't changed. The camera moves, but the scene hasn't changed. They just did a fade to black in order to cover for a camera transition. Oh my god, it drove me batty. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, there's one other thing this game did that I actually don't agree with personally. Although it's not horrible. It's not a bad thing. It's just something I didn't agree with. They made the protagonist silent. This is also in a game that has a fairly large amount of voice acting. Oh, yeah, I should say, the voice acting was actually pretty decent. In fact, I would say the voice acting was more consistently good than the recent Xenoblade uh, Chronicles 2 that I played. Which I know sounds horrible, because that's a modern game that came out on the, on the Switch. But it was more consistent. I, consistently good is the wrong word. Consistent quality. Mostly just the same general quality of voice acting, which wasn't the best, didn't have a lot of nuance or subtlety to it, but nevertheless was at least passable. There was no scenes where I was like, God, that's really out of tone. Anyways. So yeah, we have a silent protagonist in a voice acted game, which can work, and has worked, but it's, it's one of those, you're already starting uphill kind of a battle, so I'm not sure if that was the right move to go with. Considering you have a constant cavalcade of dialogue options, too, it's just sort of a... Anyways, let's talk about the story, such as it is. There really isn't much here. Like, usually... Okay, so obviously most of the story revolves around two major things. The expansionist, the expansionist tendencies of the Kuluk Empire and the Ruin of Punishment. Now, one of the things I like about this is that even the, so when I was first going through this, my first thought was, aha, this all makes perfect sense, because I knew this happened before one, and therefore this was going to be showcasing how the Scarlet Moon Empire engaged in proxy more inter interactions with the nearby powers, in this case the Kuluks. Uh, no, <laughs> that is not actually true. And near as I can tell, anyways, there's nothing that indicates the Scarlet Moon Empire had any real hand in this, while granted there were several people who were... You know, involved from the Scarlet Moon Empire, including Graham Cray, for example. But for the most part, it's just they're people who are from that place rather than the Empire itself being involved. So that, that plot thread theory just went out the window immediately. So I'm like, okay, well, what the hell's going on here? Well, to me, this actually feels like a lot more interesting of a sideline perspective. In other words, let's talk about the Kuluks for a second. Because this is 
roughly the only time we really see the Kuluks. And I'm not, but for the record, I'm not counting Suikoden tactics in all of this. I think that's the next one, which I also have not played, by the way. And I know it exists, and I know it's basically a direct sequel to this. I'm just not keeping in mind because I haven't played it, okay? Um, so we know the Kuluks are a, basically an empire on the, on the tail end of their existence. Whereas the Scarlet Moon Empire, as of this point in history, is well, is very much on the rise to the point where the Scarlet Moon Empire can do things like, Human raids as a normal thing. The so-called human hunts, just... Uh, um, yeah, there's a reason we kind of overthrew them back in one. Am I right? Anyways, uh, getting back to my point. The Kuluks, they're on the tail end of defeat. They have actually gotten to the point now where there's two factions that actually run the Empire. The Imperial faction, which is ostensibly led by the Emperor, and the Patriarchal faction, which is the actual power behind the Empire. Now, this is the interesting part. Based on that, you might think, aha, given that, it makes so much sense that the patriarchal faction is the one behind the expansionist policies, which basically leads to the entire game of four. No! In fact, by all accounts, the patriarchal faction wasn't even aware of this. And neither was the emperor. Instead, it's the imperial faction that is pushing for this expansionist effort down here into the island nations. Now, I shouldn't even have to explain why any power would want to claim the island nations. I mean, duh, right? But... What I find most interesting is that that little subversion actually makes perfect sense when I sat back and thought about it. Because it means that either members of the Imperial faction were doing so for their own aggrandizement, entirely possible, without the oversight of the Emperor, or, and I like this idea even better, they were doing this at the behest of the Emperor without him knowing about it. Because the Imperial faction at this point in history is the weaker one. The ones that don't actually have a lot of power and, and say in the day-to-day -day management of the Empire. So... The Imperial faction reaching out and claiming a bunch of new provinces and regional territories and being able to pull in all the resources and riches from that and, of course, having direct control over that would lead to a natural increase in power for the Imperial faction to help counterbalance the, the patriarchal faction. This also, theoretically, if they had succeeded in claiming the island nations, would probably have led to an actual civil war and then a split of the Kuluks into two powers. And now, of course, the Imperials would have their own power base out on the islands. The only problem is they failed miserably. In fact, I actually personally like to think that if not for the involvement of Graham Cray, which led directly to the involvement of Eleanor, I like to think that the, uh, the Imperial faction would have actually succeeded in claiming the island nations. Now, <laughs> having said that, I suppose we could take a moment to talk about Eleanor and Cray, both of whom are former Scarlet Moon members. Graham was someone who... Well, Graham isn't quite Scarlet Moon. That's actually an inaccurate statement. She was she was former Scarlet Moon. She ended up being disgraced and kicked out as a result of him doing his counterattack thing because they were doing human hunts on him, which led to his son's death, and it's just all a mess. The point that's relevant is she... Usually when you play these kind of tactical games they make a point of making it seem like the player character, who's usually an avatar of some kind, like in this game, is the one who is the strategic mind behind everything. This game, by contrast, made it feel more like Eleanor was actually the strategic mind behind everything. In fact, between Eleanor and... I'm really going to try on this one. Lino, El, Lino and Kuldes. Ugh, uh, between those two people, I think those formed the actual core leadership of the, the, the League of Nations thing that they had going on throughout the Island Nations. You're the enforcer. 
And that's actually an interesting twist on that, and I kind of enjoy that perspective. Because you are just someone who's really good in a fight, as is demonstrated several times, and you have the frickin' punishment rune, which I'll talk about more in a minute. So you are good in a fight normally, and superhumanly empowered, right? It makes sense that you would then be the enforcer for the faction, rather than the strategic, tactical, or diplomatic leader for it. Now that being said, the main character does actually have a, a decent amount of charisma, since we're the ones who run around recruiting all these people and getting everyone together. But given the fact that, under most circumstances, even assuming we do get the perfect true ending, we still don't actually end up in a position of leadership or power... I like to think that that's our overall slot in this one. Oh, for the record, I did not go for all 108 stars because I, I have deadlines to meet. And so I got the bad ending, but I did get to see the good ending on YouTube, and I do have a few theories on that I want to get to with regards to the true rune. Now, I want to comment on a couple other things here because there's a few individual moments that, that really struck out at me. One is the, the surrender of Razril, and one is the destruction of Kulia. Or, God, you know, I actually don't remember how they pronounce that. Uh, the island that was destroyed. <laughs> let's just let's just not embarrass myself any further, right? Razril's fall was something that actually made perfect sense in its own right because, well, that ties into Snow and his dad as well, who are both, let's call them typical aristocrats, which, which is a very common thing in real life and in fiction, and that's all I'm going to say about that without trying to delve into controversial territory. Because we know that, well, a lot of people are, let's put it to you this way, are more interested in themselves than in the nation or corporation or whatever that they lead, right? In other words, they will do things that are actively at the not in the best interest of their people or their organization because all they care about is what they get out of it. Well, yeah, I mean, that could, that if I push for this particular policy, that could lead to increased profits and overall stability and prosperity, but I wouldn't get much of a slice of the pie on that. But if I accept that bribe over there, I'll be able to take some dividends from this. That's, a, that's the wrong word. I'll be able to take some money out of this situation. I might even get a bonus. I might get fired in two years, but who cares? I will have a great resume. You get the idea. Now, I'm not saying Snow was like that, but Snow's dad is definitely like that. Holy crap. <laughs> he was just a, screw you, or, screw you, got mine, I believe is the phrase for that. So the idea that he would turn over his entire nation, without a fight, basically, over to, uh, over to the Kuluks makes perfect sense. Now, that having been stated, I want to talk about Snow. Now, I made a statement to my friend Pax, who I talked about briefly uh, just a bit ago, and I made the statement that Snow was the main character of the game. And he started laughing. And I'm like, what? And he's like, no, no, he's not. And I'm like, oh, really? And he's like, okay, look. I know that Snow has the most developed, you know, well-fleshed-out character arc of anyone in the entire game. And he definitely is the only one who really changes and develops. I'm like, uh-huh. And then he said, but I hate him. <laughs> I'm really curious what you guys think of Snow. Because... Well, to be 100% blunt, he's probably the only character who is, actually has time and effort put into him in this game. There are quite a few characters, and most of them are, are as cookie-cutter as can be, with basically no real story development for them whatsoever. Now, you could argue that for the Suikoden series in general, because a lot of the 108 stars are just, hey, I'm a guy, and I have one little side quest. But I mean, like, most of the people you recruit are just, hey, I'm a guy, and I like cooking, and that's basically the extent of their character, right? Hey, I'm a mermaid, and this is all I care about. You know, something like that. Um, obviously, that you know, there's usually something to develop these characters in other Suikoden games. You know, like a little side quest or whatever. Here, it's just Snow. He he gets all of the development. 
I, I'm of mixed opinion on Snow myself. He's not a get-off-my-screen character, although I, I, I imagine he is for at least a few of you listening to this right now. But for me, <sighs> Snow feels a lot like something... Okay, <laughs> Snow reminds me a lot of a character I myself played back in the Fallout roleplay. Matthew, some of you may be aware of that. In other words, someone who was designed to have a character arc, but as a consequence started off as a prat... And thus kind of pushes people away from him. Because Snow starts off, well, as a prat. <laughs> he is someone who is admittedly very human. He is a coward. He is some, and, and I'm not even saying that as an insult, by the way. More as a statement of fact. If you, the real life person, suddenly just started getting shot at by rune cannons or attacked by people with swords, there's a reasonable chance that legitimate panic, and I don't mean just fear, I mean panic where your brain stops functioning correctly as the fight or flight mechanisms basically take over might actually kick in and that's exactly what happened with snow oh my arm yeah get out get out get out you know it just he just freaks the hell out of course he does he just wants to leave i don't even blame him for that really i don't too often in fiction in my opinion people who are cowardly people who are afraid people who have those panic moments are treated as scum like it's some sort of horrible thing and only the truly noble people will stand up righteously in the face of and that's nice and all but it's not very human snow came across as very human and we see that develop as he goes through his arc and of course we can if we go the right way choose to forgive him choose to accept him Choose to say, look, it's okay, I understand that you've gone through some stuff and you're trying so hard to be a decent leader. Because Snow, it's not like he's evil. He's not like his dad, not at all. He is someone who is incompetent and partially aware of that, partially aware of his own stupidity. Eh, stupidity is the wrong word. His own lack of experience and still tries his best. It's just, let me put it to you this way. How many of you have ever known someone in your life, I have, of course, where their parents or whatever were either rich or powerful and therefore put them in, put their children into a position of power automatically because they're my kids without any of the actual training or experience or effort involved in making them good at their job, you know? I myself have encountered several people in this because I've worked at places which are family-owned businesses before. So... You know, even at a more mundane, everyday level, this concept still happens. This person has basically been promoted well past his level of competency. And I really do think Snow thinks, is aware of that to some extent or another. And how he, his character arc goes also kind of depends on you. One of my favorite options is the fact that you can just forget he exists. Snow who? I have a feeling a lot of players chose that when they were playing through this. But of course, it, well... This also kind of ties into the idea of the true rune, which I suppose I should talk about next. See, before I really talk about the rune, I want to talk about Graham Cray. Because he's technically the last boss of this game. And I say technically because actually it's the damn tree. But, I mean, he's functionally the main villain of the work. For some reason. This is probably one of the most absentee villains I've ever seen in a video game. I'm not even kidding. No no joke, when I actually brought him up to a few of my friends who have played this game, 100% of them's reaction was, I'm sorry, who? Uh, not in those words, but they didn't remember him. They didn't know who I was talking about. And I had to say, okay, the guy who's the merchant, who's selling the rune cannons, and who ends up activating the tree and wants to get... Oh, right, that guy! 
because he just has such a non-presence here. Usually I have quite a bit to talk about the villains in any given work, and here it's just, he's there! Why does he want the true rune back? That's never explained to any satisfaction, at least for me. I mean, keep in mind the, the tale. Okay, so his son uses the rune, and then the rune kills his son, because that's how it works. And then he's like, oh my god, and it leaps to him. No, there's only one way to get rid of this. Chop, and he chops off his arm to get rid of this thing. And then he spends a significant amount of time and effort manipulating a colonial war in order to get the rune back. Now, I do have two theories on this matter, because it's me. But as far as I can tell, neither of these are really supported by the game. This is just pure headcanon at this point. As ever, love to hear your guys' thoughts. But my first theory is that, well, we know that in the rune, you get some of the memories of the people who had previously used it and died. Uh, the hero demonstrates this several times. So I, I like to think that, at least on some level, he wanted the memories of his son back. Be able to connect with his son who died to this thing in some way or another. Again, nothing supports that whatsoever, but it's just a thought. The other theory is probably more accurate. See, we know... We know. We actually know very little about the true runes. I've discussed this in almost every previous Suikoden video I've done. But there is a degree of evidence in all of the Suikoden games that the true runes do have a degree of intellect. Now, I myself posit the idea that it's either higher-level chess, as I've talked about before, or lower-level animal instinct, one of the two. But in either case, it's obviously that uh, it's obvious that the Rune of Punishment does have its own agenda going throughout this game. That it actively wants to be used as much as possible to continue to, to kill and absorb and kill and absorb and just kind of do its thing. It probably comes across as the most bestial of the runes that we've encountered thus far, in my opinion. Having said that, well, it kind of makes sense to me that the reason Graham wants it back so badly is because the rune is basically calling to him. Like, the rune just hops into the next person available, but it, it recognizes that the people it's hopped into aren't going to cause the kind of mass levels of devastation and, ki and killing that Graham would do, and thus wants to get back to him. I'm not sure if that's true or not. Again, this is the realm of pure headcanon, but the rune itself, like I said, is one of the weirder examples of the true runes. So all of the true runes are curses to some extent or another, and I think I've discussed this before. But the rune of punishment is probably the most straight-up you know, literal one-to-one -one curse that we can see, because since it literally drains your health just to use it. I do actually, by the way, very much like the fact that it literally drains your HP to use it in combat. That's a nice touch. In, in story, most of the times when we see uh, the way that this thing works, when we see the way that the rune works, we see that it literally can kill someone even after only a couple of uses. That there's sort of a vague implication of how much will or vitality or overall life you have in you and it's just draining it out of you. Personally, my own headcanon is to think of it in a more abstract sense. Think about like if, if here's the, someone's lifespan. Like if nothing else happened, they would live to be 80 or whatever. And then they use the rune and that, that just shaves off like 10 years of their life or whatever. And then they use it and they use it and they use it. And then, you know, they use it to a sufficient point and it, that's the end of it. So in other words, someone who is sickly or weak would therefore be someone who will have less of a lifespan ahead of them, and thus they end up ashing out even quicker. The fact that this thing hops from person to person so quickly and in such a parasitic fashion also, get, again, gets back to that bestial nature I mentioned. This thing is practically just a virus. 
it's no wonder why in the regular ending that they just send you off on a boat out into the wild, just be like, get away from us and die somewhere over there so this thing doesn't infect the islands anymore. Holy crap, given how much damage and devastation it's caused. Now, that being stated, I do have to comment because, as we know, one of the things that can happen is this can be tr uh, turned over into its forgiveness phase. Now, the interesting thing is the forgiveness phase, from what I understand, because this is shown more in the second game, which I haven't played, is it'll heal you each time you use it, rather than drain your health each time you use it. Now, that's nice and all, but I still like to think that that's still the same general nature of the rune. It's just been flipped. Okay, that doesn't explain what I'm trying to say. I like to think that it's still fully parasitic. It's just draining their life instead of yours in order to function. Now, that's a horrible thought, admittedly, and again, I haven't played that game, but it's just, it's just food for thought, because the whole thing is so incredibly parasitic in nature. It's possible that its actual nature has changed by being switched over to forgiveness mode. I'm not sure. I also don't know what would happen when, you know, the main character dies, and then the rune is passed on to someone else. Will it just switch right back into death doom mode? The final thing I want to talk about is the tree. The giant space flea from nowhere. <laughs> I mean, really. I, I kind of saw it coming because there's a little bit of background information on it, but holy crap, it's just, I am Graham Cray, the person behind everything, and here's a tree. Um, but what I do like about the tree is that it is a very logical use of the metaphysical, the, the fantastical, in what is a very mundane story. This is kind of a recurring trend because we just went through uh, Fire Emblem Path of Radiance, which is also a very down-to-earth story, which I really enjoyed, by the way. And uh, we have a similar prospect here. Suikoden 4 is probably one of the most down-to-earth of the Suikodens in general, uh, alongside, say, 1 in that respect. And I bring that up because the only thing that's re really high tier are the rune cannons. And the rune cannons only exist because of the tree. And the tree is only here because Warlock managed to drag this sucker into this dimension and then uses its seeds as ammunition. I know that's just a simple thing to comment on, but it's so logical and sense-making that I applaud it. Because they literally just could take something from the world of emptiness, which we know very little about, and it's whatever they managed to pull here, its very existence is so inherently magical that it can be used as a volatile weapon by existing technology. Cannons already exist. So all they're doing is basically trying to develop a new type of cannon, which then shoots magic rather than, you know, projectiles or whatever. And that makes perfect sense. And, of course, leads to most of the naval combat in the Islands Nations in this era. And from what I understand, they end up trying to get rid of all the rune cannons. I mean, the tree is destroyed, so obviously the source of ammo goes away, so that makes it a finite resource, which is also interesting. I don't know, it's just a fascinating perspective. It also kind of implies that the tree can only produce so much ammunition at a time. I mean, a tree can only grow so many nuts at a time, right? I mean, that's just logical. So in other words, it's a technically infinite resource with a very finite throughput. You can only get one tree per three days kind of a thing, so that, or one nut per three days kind of a thing. or something That's a purely made-up number, but you get the idea. And thus, they would have to very carefully ration and utilize these uh, nuts and these ammunition as best as they can. It's just a cool concept. That's all I want to say about that. And that's all I got. It was kind of a short game, fun to play through. I have now played through basically all of this weekend in main series, so that was fun. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts. I'll see you next time.